and praise you for each one that is present. But Lord, we've set this time aside for your worship and we ask that we would be able to do that today. Lord, that you would allow our minds to engage the most weighty matters of the universe. That is the holiness of God and your love for us. We pray that, Lord, you would allow our minds to comprehend just a little bit more of how great you are, how good you are, and how much you love us. We ask you to work in our hearts. And, of course, Lord, we pray specifically for those that are here among us that are struggling with life, that have yet to trust you as their personal Savior, that today would be at least a step closer to that knowledge and that understanding. If not, Lord, the entire way of salvation would be today. We look to you, Lord, to do what only you can. In your name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing for the next song. And children, don't go down until after the special this morning, all right? Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the first epistle of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, you'll have another special tonight? Okay, very good. Love to hear those children sing. Amen. And uh, this morning, the subject that we will investigate is one that we talk about often here, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. We, we often mention it, and as I was going through, I said, you know, it's been a long time since we've spent the entire morning sermon just on that specific subject. Of course, there is no salvation without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no nothing It is the center of everything that we believe and understand. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Everything that we believe, everything we understand, everything that is in this Bible is wrapped around the, not the idea, The shed blood of Jesus Christ is not a religious concept. It is a physical reality. And it is that truth upon which the entire Word of God stands. People have done much despite to the grace of God... But I want us to look at the three passages where this phrase... The blood of Jesus is used in our Bibles. And you would say that, well, only three times the the blood of Christ is found, uh, I believe, four or five more times. And then there are innumerable references in the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, "...elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father..." through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, this is the second verse uh, of Peter's introduction. Uh, When we write a letter today, we go, Dear so-and-so, we address our letter at the beginning, and then at the end we sign it, sincerely yours, uh, whoever is writing the letter. They did exactly the opposite back then. 
Uh, they signed the letter at the beginning. How many of you have ever picked up a letter and started reading and say, man, who is this from? And scan the whole way down the bottom and find out, ah, Republican National Committee. Trash can. Uh, I'm not on the DNC's mailing list, so I never get anything from them. But listen, Peter is writing us, and he's in his introduction, he uses this phrase, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we look here in verse 2, and as we have read, it starts out with elect according to the foreknowledge of God. What Peter is talking about here is he's talking about our salvation. I want you to understand something today. The Bible wants you to understand there are not levels of salvation. There is only one salvation in the scripture. You are no more saved or no less saved than Abraham is, than the apostle Peter is. Uh, We look at these things and, and religion has done an awful lot of harm to our understanding of the scripture. We, we want to divide people up and say, oh, that's, that's okay for them. They're, they're really religious, but I'm not quite so religious. Uh, that's okay for the pastor. You know, he's the pastor. He's got to be a super Christian. All the rest of us, we can be okay. Uh, that's okay for the Rivero family. I mean, they're starting a church. And, I mean, Boston, of all places, pray for them. Uh, I told him, as long as the sports teams keep losing, we'll support them. Amen? (laughs) Just teasing. We are saved through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only forgiveness for sin. Now, again, we've talked about how to study your Bible. Chase that phrase, sprinkling and blood through your Bible. You'll find there's 42 references in your King James Bible, and 40 of those are in direct reference to the blood of the sacrifice being sprinkled either at the altar And uh, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 16. And I just want to read you a verse, reference Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, as we're turning to Leviticus 16. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than of Abel. Now, right here in these two verses I just read to you, we have connection to Abel, the son of Adam and Eve. I don't think we can get much earlier than that. Amen? I mean, this is the Bible in its total is speaking about the sprinkling of blood. Leviticus 16 is the ceremony that was 
to be performed on the day of atonement. And look with me at verse 14. It says, And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, we don't have time to paint the entire picture here this morning, but just uh, for a moment, if you would allow your mind's eye to picture the high priest in the garments of the high priest. He wore the breastplate, the golden mitre. He was on this day, the Day of Atonement, uh, the modern name, we call it Yom Kippur. The priest would kill a bullock. How many of you have ever seen a young bull about a year old? I mean, we're not talking about some little tiny animal. We're talking about a huge animal here. And as that uh, bullock was killed, the priest, uh, the assistants would then hold that bullock in place. And the high priest would hold a charger or a bull under the throat of that bullock. Tradition tells us that the knife that they used was so sharp that the bullock hardly even felt the slicing of the juggler vein. And as its heart began to pump that blood out and it was gathered into that bowl held by the priest, I see some people getting a little squeamish. You know what? It's not a pretty picture, my friend. Pretty soon that bullock would begin to kneel down because its life was pouring into the bowl that the priest held. And soon the blood would begin to come out with air bubbles in it because it was running out of blood. And before very long, that animal would die. It was not cut up and put on the brazen altar. The entire carcass of that animal was carried without the camp and burned whole to ashes. I'd like you to think about how big a fire it would take to consume the skin, the body, the bones of that sacrifice as it was burnt completely to ashes. This wasn't done in just a few moments. The priest, having gathered the blood of that animal, would then walk to the brazen laver and he would wash his hands. And he would take that bowl in his clean hand and he would put it toward the entrance of the tabernacle and he would wash his foot and put one foot into the door of the tabernacle. It was an elaborate ritual. No one was allowed to help him if he allowed his feet or hands to remain the least bit soiled. It would be instant death as he entered in to the tabernacle proper. He was to have in one hand the bowl containing the blood of the animal and in another he was to have a censer 
He was to reach behind the veil that separated the holies from the holiest of all. And he was to fill that holy place, which was in total darkness, with the incense. He would then hang the censer up, and he would step behind the veil. He would only do this twice, one day a year. And in the darkness, he would reach his finger into that bowl of blood, and he would sprinkle it seven times upon the mercy seat. And then he would withdraw himself. The only time he was able, and by the way, only the high priest, to penetrate that veil that separated the holies from the holy of holies. When Peter was speaking of the sprinkling of blood, He was not only referring to the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifices at the base of the altar that had happened from the Garden of Eden all the way to that present day in the temple in Jerusalem. He was speaking specifically of the Day of Atonement. You see, I want us to go back to the book of Hebrews again. And if you were here several years ago, as we went through the book of Hebrews, it took us an awful long time to wade through the book of Hebrews. And we call it God's switchboard. It's where he makes all the connections in the scripture. If you don't have an understanding of the book of Hebrews, my friend, you do not have an understanding of your Bible. You have got to spend some time with this wonderful book. But let's just look here in verse 23 of the chapter 9. It says, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. And if you would take time later today to read the beginning of the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 9, you'll find out that the context is talking about the physical tabernacle and later the temple, the things that we just spoke about. The things here on earth had to be purified, had to be... Uh, uh, served with physical offerings. But the end of verse 23, but the heavenly things themselves, the things of which were pictured in the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple, the real things were in heaven and they had to have a better sacrifice. That's why Jesus came. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Could I challenge you this morning that the greatest issue you face is your personal sin. The greatest problem you have is not that enemy who's trying to destroy you. It's not the government. The greatest enemy you face is not the Taliban, is not Al-Qaeda, is not the terrorist. 
The greatest enemy you face, the greatest problem you will ever deal with in this life is your own personal sin, the wrongs and the, and the sins that you have committed and offended the Creator God with. It's a whole lot easier for us to get more upset about other sins against us than it is for us to share concern with our offense toward God. You see, this elaborate, incredible planning of God, the Bible tells us before the foundation of the universe, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with man, God in the human flesh, would come and be born and would live and would eventually ascend Calvary's hill and die. I can't explain how it all happened, but it says here that he appeared in the presence of God to offer himself for us. Jesus ascended into heaven, not with the garments of the high priest of the Old Testament, a greater priesthood, an eternal priesthood. And the Bible tells us that he dipped his finger in the bowl of his blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Not the imitation made out of gold which sat upon the Ark of the Covenant, but the very throne of Almighty God. How much labor has gone into trying to atone for sin? Often we'll have missionaries come in and sometimes they'll tell us stories of, of people who would take incredible pilgrimages and travel to the ends of the earth and torment themselves and suffer and, and go through all kinds of of incredible things, feats beyond human endurance, all in attempt to propitiate God for their sin. I know I threw a big word in there, but it's a Bible word. It's one that you need to get the definition of. You see, you can't propitiate God. Because the definition of the word demands that the source of the payment. If you look up the word in a dictionary, it'll just talk about payment. But if you look up the word in your Bible, the definition and the usage of the word demands that the source of the payment to which God, to which is made, uh, the payment which is made to God, the source of that payment is God himself. Do you get that? Be like going to the bank and taking out a mortgage. And the bank officer writes two checks. He writes one to pay the owner of the home or the company that holds that property so that the ownership will remove from the builder or from the previous owner to the new owner. Then he writes a second check. That check has your name on it. And it's made out for the amount of the mortgage. Wouldn't that be cool? Doesn't work on earth, my friend. Only God is that good. 
God paid the debt of our sins to himself. But he doesn't just forgive our sins and pretend they don't exist. Each individual must come to him and receive that second check with their name on it. And you must appropriate those funds to yourself and then in turn bring them back to God. That's what faith is, my friend. Faith is accepting that the payment that Jesus made, his sprinkling of his blood on the mercy seat, paid the price for your personal sins. You must go to God. Aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't depend on your ability to remember every sin that you've ever sinned and confess it? None of us would make it to heaven if that were the truth. You see, the sprinkling of his blood paid the price for your sins. Many religions teach that you must come to Jesus to get saved. But if you don't follow our sets of rules, you can then lose that salvation. Let me tell you why that's false. The payment for your sins is the blood-sprinkled lap of Almighty God. Who can ascend into the presence of God and remove the blood that pays for your sins? Can't happen, my friend. That's why he gives us an eternal salvation. That's why Peter, when he talks about being elect according to the foreknowledge of God, he was not quoting John Calvin's commentaries. John Calvin would come along about 1,400 years later. He was saying that if you put your faith and trust in the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus has forgiven you for all sins. How many sins did you commit before Jesus died on the cross, my friend? Now, you've got to stop and think about that. Wait a minute. Jesus died on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. You're not that old, amen? I mean, sometimes you feel that old, but you're not. The simple truth about it is all of our sins were future when Jesus died. Your sin does not shock God. He does not cower in fear and say, Oh my, uh, 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 I, hope, I hope Brother Franz doesn't do that. Pick it on him today. God's not afraid of us. He's already paid the price. Now, if you can take that and go out and do whatever you want, the Bible says you don't have what the Bible offers. But if you want to spend the rest of your life fighting with God over sins that he's forgiven, you'll never serve him. That's what the sprinkling of blood is talking about here. It's talking about God's eternal salvation. The Bible word is election. It means that the work is done. Amen.
the sprinkling of the blood, and by the way, just so you wonder and no questions, in the mind of God was completed before he said, let there be light. In God's mind, all sins were paid for before the first sin was ever committed. God is not bound by time like you and I are. But God never has and never will condone one sin. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. That's why Resurrection Sunday morning, the best I can understand from the Scriptures, He ascended into the throne of God, into heaven itself, and those four mighty beasts that we've talked about in the book of Revelation parted as the Lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the universe sprinkled His blood upon the very lap of God. And God says, I can now retain my holiness and express my love to the world in which I live because it is finished. Sin is paid for by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Could you say amen to that today? But I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're still there in in chapter 9, you're you're right there. Verse 19. You see, most religion, when they talk about salvation, it is the end goal. Someday, if you're good enough, if you do enough, if you, if, 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 you might be saved. That's not the Bible way. You get saved first the Bible way. Your salvation is taken care of eternally today when you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ because God has something for you to do with your salvation. He did not give you the assurance of your salvation for you to sit around and wait for Jesus to come. He's got a purpose. I love that song. He's called us to make a difference. He wants us to do something with our salvation. They tell the story of an old bum here in the city, homeless, drunk. And somehow one of the rich Wall Street guys had kind of adopted him. And he would stop by, and this was supposed to have happened years ago. And he would stop by and talk to his homeless friend every day. Well, the rich man died. All of a sudden, a lawyer shows up in that dark alley looking for the rich man's bone. He says, I'm looking for so-and-so. He's over there. And he gets him and he wakes him up a little bit and, yeah, what do you want? You're not my friend. Who are you? He says, well, I got some bad news for you. Your, Your friend has passed away. But I've got some good news for you. He left everything he has to you. You are the richest homeless man in New York City. He says, now I'll keep the checkbook for you. He said, you can have anything you want. He says, you have enough money to live the rest of your life in the finest hotels and eat in the finest restaurants. He said, you have more money than you could ever comprehend. Wow, that's really great. 
And he said, I'll be here to see you and you have to let me know when you move out of here and get a decent place to live. He says, you got to understand something. He said, you are no longer poor. And as the lawyer was leaving, he says, hey, bud. He says, what? Do you, do you have any questions for me? He said, do you have a quarter for a cup of coffee? I don't know if that story's true or not, but a preacher told it, and I'm repeating it. But it does illustrate how most of us live with the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, does it not? You see, this next verse I want you to read with me, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, says, Having therefore, brethren, Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, please don't get this confused with television preaching. I heard one of these guys one time, I can't remember what I was doing as a teenager, and for some reason my mom liked that stuff, listened to it before she went to church, never have quite understood that, but I heard the guy talking as I was getting ready for church, he says, yeah, Jesus gave me a brand new Cadillac, first time I asked, he didn't hear me, he said, so I got a little loud, and I shouted, now God, I want that Cadillac, and he gave it to me, and I'm sitting here going, And he tried to use that as an illustration of this verse. Let me tell you that's blasphemy. If one of my children came to me and said, Dad, will you uh, give me money for a soda? Dad, you didn't hear me. Give me money for a soda. I'm going to give him something. They're going to get a lot of something. But it ain't going to be soda. Amen? But if you don't get that taken care of when they're four and five, you're not going to get taken care of when they're 16. And some Christians never get that taken care of. Do you understand our first point this morning? The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus upon the very throne of the Creator God. He says that we have boldness by that blood to enter into the holiest. Somebody wrote a song years ago and Just give me a cottage in the corner of heaven. That's blasphemy, my friends. God does not want his children getting to heaven by the skin of their teeth. Any more than any honest and loving parent wants their child to fail in life. 
God puts something in the heart of parents. They want their children to be successful. Isn't that true? They want their children to do something that counts. Amen? You know why? Because God wants us to understand what He wants for you and I. When He's talking about boldness here, the writer of Hebrews, He's not talking about you getting what you want to do what you want. He's talking about you building a relationship with God so God can do what He wants with your life. And let me tell you something. God will do a whole lot better job with it than you will. God wants to do great things. But let me tell you, the greatest thing is the salvation of a hell-bound soul. The second greatest thing is for you to live like you're on your way to heaven. we got enough pulper Christians running around. You know what? God's got the answers that you're struggling for. He's got victory over sin. He has got the strength that you need to deal with the sorrow and the difficulties of this life. Romans 8.32 tells us, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God was willing to sacrifice Jesus for your sin. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything he's not willing to sacrifice that you need to serve him? I have always had what I needed to serve God. And by the way, if I were honest, I didn't need anything else. This is the boldness that the writer is speaking of in the book of Hebrews. I'm thankful many years ago that God deemed that it would be better for me to serve God as a married man than a single man. Amen from our two perspective guys here. It's a wonderful thing, but marriage is not for you to get what you want out of life. Marriage is to equip you. So that you can serve God better. Boy, you got quiet in here. Not not be quiet. And if your marriage can't serve God better, then it's not godly and you shouldn't do it. Look what it says here, back in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you felt close to God? That you actually got close enough to Him to understand He is working in your life. That's boldness, my friend. That is knowing that I am walking together with Jesus. 
That's what the blood of Jesus will do for you. It's a daily battle with sin. It's a daily battle, as the Bible tells us in James, that we are tempted when we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. The Bible says exactly the opposite here in the book of Hebrews, that we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we should draw near to God. By the way, you can't draw near to God with the cable remote in your hand. Amen? Ooh, got really quiet then. You can't draw near to God with your heart wrapped around your position or your stocks or something that you're going to do. That drawing near to God means you have to lay everything else aside. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast that profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now that is a unusual word use of the word provoke, is it not? The word provoke means usually to stir up anger. But what it's talking about here is Living your life in such a way that those around you do not have any choice but to get a little closer to God. Now, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone said, when I'm around you, I I can't do the things that I used to do. I just want to be closer to the Lord. If you have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you're close to Him, others will notice. You don't have to give up on Jesus. He'll never give up on you. Just get close. I love the story. We talked about it last Sunday morning. Peter walking on the water. He began to doubt. He began to sink. Tell you what, he didn't doubt holding Jesus' hand on the way back. He said, you think he held his hand? I'll bet you he held on to something. How about you? And it's okay. Because Jesus wants us to be close. He's paid for our sins Not so we can have freedom of conscience to do what we want. But so that we can have freedom to get close to Him. Every once in a while, little Jason will come running through the house. Pray for us. We're potty training. And it'll, ah, and you pick him up and it's, oh, That's not good. I really don't want him to be that close when he's in that situation. And why should God have to put up with our soil? Because he paid for every sin with the sprinkling of the blood. He wants us to be close to him. 
Tell you what, there's nothing like cuddling a little baby. Just crawl up in beside in the bed and just sit there and go, mm. oh, that is so nice. How many of you as adults could use a little closeness with God like that? Well, you got to take care of the sprinkling first. God is not moving. So guess who does? You do. But if you'll draw nigh to him, what's he going to do? He's going to draw nigh to you. And let me tell you, his steps are a little bigger than yours. Amen? One more. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1. First John, all the way in the back of the Bible, that little book. Chapter 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. It's the sprinkling of the blood that brings election or salvation. It is that sprinkling that gives us boldness or entrance into the holiest, into the very presence of God. And most of the time when we read this passage, we read it backwards. 1 John chapter 1 is not saying, if you walk in the light... He'll forgive you your sins, but if you don't walk in the light, you're not going to have any forgiveness. This is a passage that is addressed to people who are already saved. They've already taken care of the sprinkling. He is trying to help them to draw closer to God and understand what our relationship with God ought to be. In verse 4, he tells us, And these things write we unto you that your joy... Maybe full. And I'll tell you what, joy is one of those things. I mean, it leaks out easy. Uh, it's one of those things in your life that is most easily dissipated. But the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. You wonder why we have such weak Christians today? We have no joy. Why do we have no joy? Well, we're not close. We're not entering into the holiest. We're not living as if we were sprinkled from all of our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. I want us to understand this passage is not talking about salvation. It's talking about endurance. It's talking about finishing the course. Did God save you because of your holiness? Did He save you because you were such a good person? Did He save you because He liked you and didn't like someone else? No, that's not the God of the Bible. It's for whosoever. Aren't you glad it said whosoever? That's anybody who will believe in Him. Verse Five, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light 
And in Him is no darkness at all. Remember years ago, I had a lady call me up and she said, God, uh, uh, Pastor, I want, I'm just afraid of God. I said, well, the Bible does, excuse me, the Bible does tell us that we need to fear Him. And not, I'm, I'm afraid that God's going to do something to me. I said, well, that's blasphemy. God is not sitting there waiting to do something to you harmful. In him is light. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I can't tell you how many times someone has said over the years, But pastor, I've gotten my life into such a mess that I can't do right. I have to do something wrong in order to do right. Let me tell you, that is a lie of the devil. You never, ever have to do wrong. The essence of all temptation is let me do a little sin so a greater good will happen. In the book of Judges, they didn't do that which was wrong in their own eyes. They did that which was right. Let me tell you something. In spite of how wicked our day is and how evil our society has become, people are still trying to do right. The only problem is they don't know what the meaning of the word is. You see... God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. When you start seeing darkness, let me tell you, you are the one that is walking towards sin. I've heard people say, well... You know, I I need to straighten out a few things in my life, but it's really going to hurt and cause a lot of upheaval. And That's a lie. There may be a little suffering. Let me ask you a question. Have have any of you had something embedded? I'm not talking about just a little splinter. I, I mean, I'm talking about a big splinter down deep. Uh... It takes a little bit of effort to get the splinter out. But let me tell you, it's a whole lot better than leaving it in there. You know what happens when you leave a piece of wood inside? It begins to disintegrate, to rot. And everything that you've known to mankind is going to be invited into that spot in your body. It's got to be taken out. Don't confuse that with, well, I'm just going to have to do this. Wait a minute. Could I challenge you? You can't remove the splinters. Only God can. You see, that's what the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat is all about, the forgiveness of sins. And when we go about trying to right our wrongs, you know what we accomplish? 
more wrongs. What we have to do is we have to walk in the light. God's not going to ask you to sin to make things better. He's not going to ask you to hurt someone else so that you can obey Him more. The Bible tells us here, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Dr. Phil is not going to help you out of your depression. Secular psychology is not the answer. Let me tell you something. God's Word is the answer. There's a lot of darkness in this world. And sometimes we as Christians are willing to accept a little darkness. If I can illustrate from history. We've taught a lot about Baptist history and the Anabaptist movement. People who refused the infant baptism of the Catholic Church in medieval Europe. Not all Anabaptists were Bible believers, by the way. All you had to do was disagree with the Catholic Church to get put into that category. But when the Protestant Reformation came, many of these Anabaptists that had suffered for hundreds of years were willing to Protestantize to escape persecution. They were willing to accept a little darkness because they thought it would mean less suffering in their life. That's where many of our Protestant main day, the uh, Arminian branch, if you want to call it that, that's where they came from. In him is light, and there's no darkness at all. You don't have to accept a partial truth. You don't have to accept a little sin. What you have to do is you have to let God take care of what God can take care of. How many of you wish you had a time machine? You could go back and straighten some things out, huh? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Doesn't work that way. What it does do is say, I've got to take a step today. Is it going to be in the light? Or is it going to be in darkness? I've got to take a step tomorrow. Is it going to be in light? Or is it going to be in darkness? It's not complicated to obey God's word. And when we're challenged to disobey God's word, we have to realize that that's not God. That's the devil in every instance. Now, sometimes I think I'm too general in my preaching. But if I get any more specific, I have people saying, Pastor, you were preaching about me. No, I wasn't. But I want you to understand something. If we say we have no sin, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We as Christians do wrong. You are not kept saved 
by your doing right. You are kept saved by the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. And if you want victory over things in your life, you've got to draw near to God. And you've just, what we're talking about here is just walking in the light because the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. How many times have you done something wrong and wasn't even aware of it? Hello? Is that any less of a sin? Did Jesus die less for that than he did for the things you did on purpose? I had somebody say, well, if you sin on purpose, you're not saved. Well, then nobody's saved. Because we all sin on purpose. No one made you go down and buy the pack of cigarettes and stick it in your mouth and light it and suck in on that thing. Nobody made you do that. Nobody made you pay your cable bill. Just stop paying it and see what happens. It's wonderful. They just shut off the sewer line. Amen? Listen. You're not saved. You don't keep your salvation. You don't exercise yourself by your doing right. It will be the natural response of entering into the holiness, holiest, by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm glad God doesn't depend on this brain of mine to keep me saved. I'd lose my salvation every week. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What this is, is God's opportunity for you to admit your wrong and make it right. How many of you have ever had that happen? You've hurt another individual. And you went to them and you confessed your wrong and God gave you restoration. Isn't that a wonderful experience? This verse here says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I tell my Hannah story one more time? She was a little girl, very timid. This was back in the old apartment. And one day she just came shrieking through the apartment. And she had a little leftover syrup on her hand down here and contacted one of Mama's long hairs. And every time she waved that arm, that big old hair dangled down there. And it was literally terrifying her. Well, the first thing he did was pull the hair off. Kill that monster. Second thing he did was got a damp cloth and cleaned off the syrup so you didn't pick it up again. See, that's what God does. Why don't you stop worrying about how perfect you can live and start doing the things that you ought to do? And all the rest of that will take care of itself because his blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. He's not going to let you draw close if you're dirty. He's going to give you a diaper change first. Amen? But then he's going to draw you close. And you'll be able to walk in the light because you're walking next to the Savior.
and he'll keep you there if you'll stop trying to help him. Does that make sense? There's no excuse to sin. But let me tell you, you're not going to live perfect until you get to heaven. So stop being proud about how close you are and get broken about how far away you are and walk in the light. And when he brings your sin to mind, you confess it. But you keep walking with the Savior. And all God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would bring home this truth of your blood. Of the blood of Jesus Christ, how it's sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. Having obtained an eternal redemption. Lord, that you want us to draw near to you to hold fast our profession and to provoke others, to bring others with us. And Lord, that we would endeavor to walk in the light and that you would tune our eyes to see as the darkness enters in our own thoughts and minds that we could confess that as sin. Lord, help us. Work in our lives. Lord, these things are written that our joy may be full. We ask for the joy of our salvation, that we may walk hand in hand with the Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. As Brother Franz comes.